Well, I was brought to Alaska virtually through the Greenbelt Society and our colleague Howard Sprouse. And as I learned more, I realized that there were many um, issues and concerns there from melting permafrost to retreating sea ice that gets us to receding glaciers and so on, which uh, Patrick Anderson can discuss. We're gonna have a discussion after we're, we're done. So please feel free to, to ask questions of any of the individuals that are in the film. And, uh, and any topic you want is, is good. I think part of the wonders of making a film is you let people experience things for themselves and come to whatever understandings or questions they want. So I don't wanna to say too much. I just wanna leave it, leave it to all of you and we'll, we'll talk uh, when we're done in 23 minutes. So Natalie, if you're good, we can go ahead and get started. The deadly coronavirus made its way to the United States. And even in the far reaches of Alaska, we were advised by our United States government, stay home, stay safe. All of a sudden, we were in isolation. While in isolation, I started a podcast called Climate Change Is Here. This film is a product of this important effort to make the world aware and engage them in this critical conversation about climate change and the real threat it is imposing on people, our environment, and the health of both. There's a lot of naysayers still. There's a lot of people that want to say that there is not a climate crisis. Just like there's a lot of people who didn't believe that the virus even exists. No running water, no flush toilet, and then multiple generations living in one home. So that's just, gosh, Jeff, that's just the recipe for a, a, a virus like COVID. Aki Act is hitting at about 60% of the population affected by COVID. There's deaths happening in the villages, and yeah, it's pretty devastating. I don't know if it's willful ignorance or if it's just that they're, they're thinking, you know, on a, just a purely economic uh, perspective. but. You can't ask a people who have been connected to a place for so long to just uproot and move to someplace else. It, that's that's not, you know, for for the natives and for the, 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 the tribe that lives there, that's not an option. Kivalina is a village that's located on a a strip of land that is getting narrower by the day from erosion, primarily because of the ice continuing to melt uh, due to global warming. Buildings and things are falling into the water. So they uh, need to move, but the urgency of moving won't be funded until it's actually a disaster area. They don't have any centralized or even decentralized uh, sanitation there, and so most people do use what they call a honey bucket, which is a five-gallon bucket. Um, they live in homes with uh, maybe two or three generations of family members there. And so trying to deal with that on a daily basis is, is burdensome. 
it's a very unsanitary um unsanitary way of living right but that's that's all we knew right my childhood home um we finally got a flush toilet in our house just before we got into high school there's about 300 villages that will be uh subject to uh, the climate uh, change there and will have to move because their villages are being eroded away because they're along the coast and the, and the coast is being taken. It's going to cost them hundreds of millions of dollars uh, to, to relocate and to move. There are severe weather patterns that exist up here. That same pack ice that I talked about that has been retreating also protects this peninsula from the worst ravages of winter storms. On top of that, the warming climate is melting the permafrost. And then the migratory patterns and the fish, they uh, live in a certain temperature, they return at a certain time of the year. When the climate starts to shift, migratory patterns shift. Uh, it may be more expensive to get out to where the uh, resources are. I mentioned fuel can cost eight, nine, ten dollars a gallon, and uh, when you're spending a, a few hundred dollars to try to get out to a place to harvest something, the cost becomes sometimes prohibitive. Same is true with bullets. So all of these challenges come together and add to the stress that a community is experiencing. Uh, my mother attended a Catholic boarding school for uh, her uh, primary school uh, and went to a Bureau of Indian Affairs boarding school for uh, high school. That was framed in a different way after I became familiar with the Adverse Childhood Experience Study and later on, the whole world of toxic, tolerable, and normal stress. Since discovering the Adverse Childhood Experience study, I have related it to a number of root causes of problems and issues that not only Alaska Natives, but non-Natives have faced. When we talk about power, uh, it's not political. When we talk about power, it's not this grid that provides our energy when, when we talk about power it really is um, the water and the wind and the waves and the thunder and the lightning that's power when i talk about the earth you know purging because she has a fear that's what i'm talking about our dilemma is Will we be able to handle that purge together? And uh, you went up there and rented a house. Can you tell me about that? Sure. So um, we had stayed in a house up there. Um, uh, we found out a, a few days after we had been there that someone had committed suicide there uh, just a few days before. So it was it was tragic. We don't know the, the all the details of that, but. Um, it's, it's a common thing that happens there. People have struggles up there, and uh, and and that's often how they they resolve it, which is which is terrible, terribly tragic. This parade celebrates the end of the sealing season on St. Paul. 
The Aleuts that live here call it Homer Gone Day, in remembrance of the day when the U.S. revenue cutter Homer left the island laden with seal skins the Aleuts were forced to harvest. It was done with the blood, sweat, and tears of our people who were only given a subsistence living. My, my traditional name was given to me at four years old by the last Kuyak that was left alive amongst my people. He gave me his, his name, and uh, this is something that had been passed along from generations. And uh, we would call each other Kuyak. And um, uh, that, that name means like an arm extending out from the body, a carrier of ancient knowledge into modern times, a messenger. I was born and raised on St. Paul Island, part of the Pribilof Island in the middle of the Bering Sea that is not part of the Aleutian chain, uh, but is, is in the middle, up above the Aleutian chain, about 250 miles uh, from the nearest land uh, along the Aleutian chain. And um, this is, I was born and raised on an island that's uh, very small. It's 12 miles wide and uh, uh, 12 miles long and five miles wide. Um, and we had, we had when I was a child, about 1.2 million northern fur seals and two and a half million seabirds, a thousand reindeer and uh, 500 Dunungan people. Uh, in both St. George and St. Paul. St. George is our sister village 40 miles away. There is a pattern in Alaska of brutal exploitation and policy assumptions that worked against the cultures of the regions. The Aleuts fared no better in the hands of the federal government during the wartime relocation program of World War II. December 7th, 1941, the Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor and the U.S. enters the Second World War. The war was brought to Alaska in June of 1942 when the Japanese bombed Dutch Harbor on Unalaska Island. Repulsed by the U.S. Army, the Japanese withdrew to the islands of Attu, Agatu, and Kiska at the end of the Aleutian chain. Although these Aleutian islands were hundreds of miles away from the Pribilofs, the Aleuts of St. George and St. Paul were evacuated and taken to internment camps in southeast Alaska. I don't want to go through that experience again. It's, I just can't describe how sad it was. To get to know my grandfather and for my grandfather to get to know me, I had to be with him 24-7 for two years starting at age four. Um, and uh, I, went, uh, I went to work with him uh, at that time, they were, they were slaves of the federal government, and um, uh, but nevertheless, he would take me to work with him every day. I would drink tea with him and, and his friends every night. Um, I would pray with him every day where we'd go down to the Bering Sea and take off our shirts and spray ourselves with the Bering Sea, praying towards the east. And that evening, we might go to the Russian Orthodox Church. He didn't see any, any uh, importance in where one got one's spirituality. Uh, my people 
understood that we had to be present in the moment and in the heart. The rest will be taken care of. And it requires a trust in every aspect of being a human being that we had to embody this trust at the cellular level where we trusted in ourselves, our lives, and trust in, in our community, trust in uh, the land, the sea, trust in the uh, Mother Earth, universe, and a being that we call a role. That we need to trust at such a level that there was not a shred of a doubt in our bodies. And with that kind of trust, everything is taken care of if you're in the heart and present in the moment. That's uh, the way my people work. And when I asked my elder on St. Paul, he was uh, Father Lestenkoff, he said, uh, you know, look at, look at the birds. You think that they worry about where they're going to get their food the next day? And are we any different? And of course the answer is no, that we are not any different. The animals don't worry about where they're going to get their food the next day. What makes you happy about being the priest at St. Paul? Well, first of all, is I seen the people love me, and I love them, especially the children I baptized. At one time, that church was the only private property my people had, still have today. And that is where we could all go and be ourselves. And if it continues that way, I don't think I have too much to worry about. The Primaloff Islands are called the birthplace of the winds. So we get wind all the time. But in this day, it was perfectly calm. There was no wind. Uh, the sea was perfectly flat and there was no cloud in the sky. We get 20 days of sunshine a year in, in the Bering Sea. This day was very unusual, and the seals were barking, and the and the the birds were singing, and and uh, I just at four years old I, I had to remark in Nungantunu, uh, the, the Aleut language, I I said something like it's sure beautiful, and he just puts his finger to his lips and says, Tutuda. And what he said uh, probably encapsulates why our people survived and thrived in Bering Sea for over 10,000 years. And that is that uh, we should listen and not remark because as soon as we say a word, try to express our feeling, we diminish the experience. So the most important of human experiences um, uh, are not to be um, 
vocalized that that we need to just take it all in. What we know in the Bering Sea, the scientists, bless their hearts, they're struggling with trying to understand what's happening in the Bering Sea. They don't know the kinds of things that we know. For example, uh, our elders tell us that uh, the fur seals and the seabirds are like honeybees. They send out mess of scouts looking for food and they come back and they signal it to their rookery. Mother Earth, she has survived for billions of years. She's going to survive for billions more. It's a question about whether or not we humans are going to survive. And it's going to be decided by people in this lifetime. And uh, that what it requires is that we reach our gift within our hearts. The hearts, uh, from our understanding, is the only place that is in connection with the divine. And um, it it's never guides us wrong. It always guides us impeccably right. There's a Lushutsi word, it's Hachusadat. And the simplified version of that is education, but really Hachusadat is traditions of the heart. And with traditions of the heart comes compassion. But tradition of the heart means that we know what our values are and we uphold those values. We're in a win-lose situation and we can take our time and let the earth continue to warm and, uh, and hope and pray, or we can stop our behavior like we did with this coronavirus. I think that virus had a lot to teach us about how we might be able to adapt better and more emergent. But I don't know, like there's a lot of naysayers still who didn't believe that the virus even exists. Just like there's a lot of people that wanna say that there is not a climate crisis. But I like what Gore was saying in um, Inconvenient Truth. It's certainly inconvenient for a lot of people that don't want to look at it. But we need more people to be brave enough to look at it and to actually do something rather than sit on the fence and wait for someone else to do it because it's only our future at stake. How can we adapt our thinking to be more um, impactful around these issues as individuals? Communication is critical and important at a time like this, and it's only now really starting, uh, and it's being demanded by the American Indian Alaska Native community that climate issues be addressed because, uh, as we've just demonstrated, uh, we are severely affected and impact by what's going on in climate change in this country and in this world today. Alaska Native people have had to adjust for centuries to changing circumstances and conditions. Back in the 1600s, the people who lived, who now live in, in the native village of Huna in southeast Alaska were actually living in Glacier Bay uh, during an advance of glaciers. And it was a rapid advance. Uh, the, the local people 
through the uh, oral history uh, said that the glaciers were moving as fast as a dog runs. So they left the Glacier Bay area relocated. Now those glaciers are receding as a part of the climate change that is occurring. But um, what's going to happen is, is that they won't be able to return to their traditional homelands because Glacier Bay is now a, a, a wilderness area. It's uh, not accessible uh, to people. In fact, uh, cruise ships are limited to, I think, one hour in the bay itself. Uh, and so uh, a lot of the issues faced by Alaska Natives is that uh, because Alaska was such a pristine state uh, back in the 1970s and 80s, a lot of it was set aside for uh, federal purposes. It just uh, gives me another argument for if the feds have so much land here and are locking up so many resources, uh, is it not a part of their obligation to return some of that resource value to Alaska Native communities that suffer as a, uh, because of their inability to develop those resources? I think of back in the um, 90s, I met this um, elder from Greenland. Was it Greenland? And um, he was from a village up there and he was going around the, the globe, going around the earth, and he was talking about this prophecy. And what he said was that um, one day he's going to be, you know, he, that culture he comes from is canoe culture also, like us. You know, we, we're surrounded by water here. We're in the Pacific West. And he was saying that, you know, one day he, he would be paddling down Fifth Avenue in New York and water would be like five stories high. And, and, and so I think that that's a real simplified version or way of thinking about what's to come. In Alaska and the Arctic, there are four lenses we can use to see. Climate, environment, human rights, and health. We may call it systems thinking or design thinking. To plan for solutions on multiple levels, connecting the dots, benefiting the people who are there and investing in them. In my own state of California, too close for comfort, enormous fires devastate the people and the landscape. There's no turning away a sense of anxiety can be felt in the air. We face potentials and problems. So what are the potentials? I really like what these young people are doing when they say take the state to court because of the climate crises and that they're starting to get more vocal. They're starting to become activists and taking a stand and marching and boycotting, especially in the British Columbia area. And we, as we see a lot of their forest is on fire. If the means is far beyond the scope of what our tribe has the capacity for, you know, it's obvious that we, we need each other. We have to strategize together because frankly, we're in it together.
All right. Thank you, everyone. I feel like it's a good moment to take a deep breath and think about what we saw and what we're feeling about it. Shelley Vendiola came up with a wonderful suggestion that I get the conversation started by asking a few questions. So I wanted to ask you, Shelley, you're involved with the Protect Mother Earth subcommittee of your tribe, which is the Swinomish tribe near and around La Conner, Washington. And you are Coast Salish. There's 50 Coast Salish villages that support you in your work. So can you tell us a little bit about your, your uh, efforts and the work of the committee and what the goals are and how you work? Sure, thank you for asking that question. Um, I just want to say gratitude uh, for those of you on the Pacific and Hathlahel for Enrique and others that are on the East Coast. Hagalitsa Sistad, Swarops Chad. I'm with my mother who's Hagalitsa. She's also named Hagalitsa, so I carry the same name as my great great grandmother and my mother. And yes, that was pretty powerful. I really loved the way they kind of wove that story together and how um, it sort of integrates the different tribes and the issues around water. And so what we do at Protect Mother Earth, um, it's a subcommittee of our Department of Environmental Protection here at Swinomish. And because we're virtually surrounded by water, um, we have a, and, and we're low lying, Skagit is one of the lowest lying areas in the state of Washington. We know that we have been, um, you know, already inundated with storm surges, for example, over the years. And, and we're seeing, you know, things go away or <clears throat> try to migrate away like our clams. Um, and we have two oil refineries up on a piece of uh, our reservation that was taken by executive order by U Ulysses Grant when he was in the president. Ex executive orders are, are one strategy that uh, is used to take land away from tribes in spite of the 1855 Treaty of Point Elliot. Um, we still are having to deal with this uh, military industrial complex, which I define as the uh, relationship between the federal government of the United States and the corporations that are protected by the military. That's a military industrial complex in a simplified form or explanation. And, and so we, we have a need to really educate the people in and around our reservation who are gonna be just as inundated as we are and have a lot of economy just like we do and like salmon, just like we do, except we think of it as a sustenance, as a spirit. Swadops is Swinomish. We are people by the water and we are people of the salmon. And so when you come to our village and you're all welcome to come to our village anytime, um, as long as you practice safe measures and we follow the CDC and the tribal guidelines to stay safe, 
um, because we are in a pandemic and it's awful to have to deal with this climate crisis when you're in a pandemic. But luckily we have these wonderful technology and these experts that know how to use it like Robert. So I really appreciate your work and I really appreciate um, the invitation to be here today and, and Ricky, your group for helping set up this platform. And uh, my mother was really interested in witnessing this today because part of our work is to raise awareness and educate our community and those beyond our community, um, those who live in the state of Washington, for example, because we know that we have many tribes here too that are fighting to take those dams off their rivers because salmon is our sustenance and it's kind of hard to swim back where you can spawn, you know, there's dams in the way, I mean, hence the word dam, you know, they're blocking them. And so it's really an emergent situation that we find ourselves in because, you know, the Columbia River Indian Fishing Commission has been doing a lot of lobbying and still continues to do that. You know, we have representatives from our own tribe. We just lost a strong warrior who stood by Billy Frank Jr. for many years. Lorraine Loomis. Um, and so the work just continues. Billy always said, we got to stay the course. And this is just me trying to stay the course while preparing our next generation, you know, for adapting in a world that I don't know. I don't know what's to come yet, but I'm seeing and witnessing a lot of impact. And your film really, you know, just raised that to another level, Robert. So again, just raise my hands to your good work and your heart. And, uh, you know, we are bringing that the language back to our community. Our prayer is that, you know, we have this two-prong approach, 10 years plus, so that would be 12 years now since our last adaptation report came out that allowed us to start planning around ad adaptation and mitigation. So we're gonna do an update and the second part of the work is this, what we're calling a way forward toolkit. And the foundation of that toolkit is bringing back our Lashootsi language, because we know that the language will connect us back to the earth and to our sustenance, like the salmon. And that there are many stories about who we are and there are many terms like Hachusada about how we should carry ourselves. Hachusada meaning traditions of the heart. You know, it's like our knowledge of who we are in this place, we call Skagit because we are four Aboriginal tribe or groups, I should say families. At colonization time, we didn't have, we didn't call ourselves tribes. We were families in these huge massive longhouses along a river system, Skagit. And uh, we had a way of knowing and being that said that we know how to be together when there's over a hundred in one longhouse and there's no running water or electricity. So hence, you know, I think there's a way um, to look at what's to come by looking at what happened before in our ancestors time you know, the water was a lot more pure back then. But it's not like, you know, we haven't been down this pandemic road before. We're, we're seeing it. And I feel very um, much like Indigenous people are the indicator species of the human race. 
and that what Larry and others have been saying for quite some time now, they're messengers, just like this virus is a messenger. I think that uh, there's a lot to be um, shared uh, by the indigenous people who, who still actually speak the language and are still connected to their place. That we as a human species might find some resolve in that somehow. And so we're just trying to do what we can at our little village by the water as we're getting more and more inundated and we're seeing a lot of fires around us. We have a lot of trees on our reservation as well. So, you know, that's a big issue that you bring out too, you know, with what's happening in California. It hasn't hit us yet, but, you know, the earth continues to warm. And Carrie Dan of the Western Shoshone, she always said the earth has a fever. Every time we went to these global um, indigenous uh, environmental justice and climate change forums or summits, few of them being up in Anchorage, actually, we, we, we hear firsthand how the Arctic and, you know, those Alaskan villages are being impacted today. And we're not quite there yet, but we are, it's, it's, it's happening more quickly. So that's kind of it in a nutshell, what we're doing. We're really trying to educate our young people and, and bring back that, that language. Shelley, thank you so much for your stories and your inclusion and your outreach and your work. And it's been really important for me to hear what you guys are all about. And I'm just so pleased that you shared that. Um, I wanted to ask Patrick Anderson, who's in Alaska and is focusing on some of the, the problems that many of us in the lower 40, 48 don't think about, which is the toxic stress from different sources. Can you, can you orient us a little bit toward that, um, Patrick, in a couple minutes? Uh, absolutely. Um, I, I'm a Tlingit elder, so a couple of minutes is a real challenge. <laughs> I first want to thank uh, John Miller for connecting me with Robert. Uh, Robert uh, is like a sponge uh, in, in our conversations, absorbing a lot of information and material, but he, like any sponge, uh, you can wring it out for release of that material, and he has shared a lot with me in our uh, many conversations. I think there are a few aspects of that video that are just downright brilliant, but will require explanation to bring to the fore. Uh, one is that Robert spoke of systems and, and uh, system design, uh, critical and important because the weather systems are exactly that. They're dependent on each other all over the world. And my culture is just a small, portion of that that is seeing the detrimental aspects of it uh, much quicker. So systems, I believe, are critical and important for us to focus in on. It's a different way of thinking. Um, the Greenbelt Society, for example, when I first saw that, what it means to me is that there is a science of management referred to as um, Six Sigma, I, I disagree with its basic premises, but it has a lot of great content on it. And the entry level to uh, Six Sigma is called a green belt. Uh, you learn from a master uh, and then you get this designation of uh, being a green belt and you're 
goal is to try to look towards systems um, improvement using a specific methodology. Um, highly trained in that methodology, I don't think like the rest of the world, and it puts me into trouble all the time. What um, Larry Merkuliev said is going to be missed by a huge part of society, but it will be recognized by those of us who are into the study of the Buddhist tradition and meditation uh, being present, uh, being in the moment. And um, that I think is another key. And then the third key that Robert asked me to talk about in a couple of minutes is basically one that I have a two hour elevator speech. Uh, John Miller, uh, thank you for connecting me with Robert. John was my boss at uh, the Macaw tribe in Nia Bay. And so he has had an opportunity to listen to the uh, words that I share about uh, trauma. Uh, my people and the reason I brought up my mother uh, were subjected to a great deal of trauma, both by official policy of the United States uh, and uh, as has occurred, a morphing into an intergenerational transfer of that trauma. It is real. It affects brain science. So I have had to dig into things that I never thought I would have to dig into to try to understand what it does to us. What happens to you as a child, both nutritionally uh, by the disruption of our traditional patterns of nutrition uh, and by treatment? Uh, away from what uh, Larry was talking about in terms of going to uh, his grandfather um, for a couple of years and learning traditional knowledge ha has been taken from us. As a consequence, uh, I tell stories like the black frying pan storage. I grew up with, with a cast iron frying pan uh, in my mother's kitchen. Uh, and when I was hearing my mother scream because her white boyfriend who lived with us was beating her, uh, I came out of my bedroom. The first thing I did was to try to think about how do I protect my four sisters who were in another bedroom, grabbed a black frying pan as I moved through the kitchen. And as a 10, 11 year old boy standing in front of them in their closet with the frying pan in front of me, trying to figure out how to protect them. The human brain develops uh, maladaptations uh, if we are raised in that kind of environment. And that's what I was trying to share with Robert. A lot of the reason that we are in the world we are in today is because we have that intergenerational transfer of trauma that doesn't necessarily reflect the level of trauma that we face as a child. When you're trying to form attachments uh, as a two, three, four-year-old, and your world is disrupted as a, as a consequence of that, there are physical changes in your brain. The amygdala uh, starts to, to increase in size, the hippocampus, which mediates the passage of information through the amygdala into the prefrontal cortex, changes. It never leaves you, but it can be ameliorated. And that's the message that I tried to share but in trying to understand why people are resistant to uh, new messages, uh, Robert and I have had a number of conversations and I'll leave a few phrases with you and leave you to reach out if you want to know more about them. But 
Everett Rogers, for example, came up with what he refers to as the innovation curve. Uh, you probably, if you've read Malcolm Gladwell's book, The Tipping Point, uh, have seen a superficial introduction to it. Uh, the entry level of that is that most of our people in this country are no longer innovative or creative. Uh, George Land, uh, in, in tremendous research done for NASA, uh, followed a population and determined that as adults, only about two and a half percent of us retain any innovative or creative abilities, that we have the ability to think and to make connections in a systems point of view. The second level are early adopters. They follow the people who are making the innovations uh, and, and then there's the early majority, late majority and laggards. And so we're following the laggards. Um, when you look at the companies that are requiring COVID vaccinations, uh, two, three, maybe 4% of the laggards are driving the agenda. Uh, and we have a majority that we should be able to just slam them but unfortunately, uh, we're not able to do that. And then when you look at, and, and Robert's trying to struggle through this as I am, you look at the world of cognitive biases. Uh, and Daniel Kahneman uh, and Abe Tversky's work on explaining what happens in system one and system two of the brain. One, the automatic response that's fed by adverse childhood experiences and childhood acquired trauma, and the other side, uh, that is actually fed by thinking. Uh, and then when you look deeply into the science, you realize how hard it is for us to think. I want to leave you with one other brilliant piece of work, and that is the community readiness model that came up through the University of Colorado's Triethnic Center. Uh, it describes nine levels of human effort to try and affect change, and it's a very brilliantly uh, thought through theory of how you acquire the information to understand the level that you're at. We're probably at a level three or four. So in a systems brain, what we try and do is to look at level three or four. And what the triethnic center has done is to tell us that here is how you determine what level you're at. And here is the messages that you need to be giving out. If I could see one effort come out of this, what I would like to see is that we adopt a divergent conversation methodology, that we invite all thoughts and ideas in, try to unleash people from their addiction to system one thinking, uh, that is what they've been learned, what they have learned and what they have been taught. I'm not uh, disparaging my own culture, but we are very system one thinkers. Uh, except when we're forced into innovation and we're being forced into that by climate change right now. But when we're looking at divergent conversations, what it is doing is you invite people in. John sat through this when I was, uh, I brought John up for uh, eight weeks because I was uh, not trusting my staff at a new job. And I brought him into an improvement event so he sat through an effort where we handed out yellow stickies and each individual was asked if they could write down as many thoughts and ideas as they could come up with in a 10 to 12 minute period of time. I think John will confirm that most people stop writing after five or six minutes, but they do come up with six, eight, 10, 12 thoughts and ideas. It does it in an anonymous format that takes people away from the potential ridicule for coming up with an idea that might be valuable.
when we go into the convergent conversations, we take what came out of the divergent uh, uh, thinking exercise. They have been grouped, they've been placed into a diagram that appropriate to my culture is referred to as a fishbone. Understanding the various systems elements of the, of the topic uh, and the convergent conversations then begin to develop thoughts and ideas on how to improve the processes. Uh, that's a lot to think about. Uh, I'll leave it at that and apologize, Robert, for taking more than two minutes. But uh, I think from our conversations, you realize that two minutes is a difficult barrier for me. And I'll leave it at that. Thanks very much for the film. I, I uh, enjoyed being a part of it. And again, thank you, John, for connecting us. Hutnitsen, as we say in the Klallam language. Um, thank you, Patrick. You've really enlightened us on a lot of um, very important aspects of environmental protection and connection to our place. And you're correct, we had many wonderful conversations, myself getting my head around what you are saying and the references and so forth. So it's been a tremendous learning experience. Um, are there any questions? Have any of you been stimulated to uh, to think of anything that you'd want to know right now. Otherwise, we'll maybe ask someone else to give a little brief uh, uh, story. Romero, I know you have a question. Come on. It was just great to listen to everything. Um, unfortunately, I had a lot of internet connectivity, so I didn't get to see the video. And I'm wondering, maybe everyone else wants to know how can we get to see the, the, the short film again? Uh, the short film is on my website for this project. And the okay. project name is uh, Climate Change is Here. So the website is climatechangeishere.com. And then this is also, as I mentioned, a series of podcasts. And it's available audio only on Apple Podcasts. You just have to go to Apple Podcasts and search for Climate Change is Here. And there are soundtracks from three short films having to do with the Walter Monk Foundation for the Oceans that you will hear. They're short, they're six minutes, four minutes, et cetera. That's recent work and recent thinking. The 13 podcasts, you may have to scroll down since they are not the most recent. So uh, we have 13 podcasts from people around the world, including uh, Lusaka Zambia and um, from our state of California and so forth. So it's a really interesting mix of ideas and thoughts that go along with this conversation today and it's readily available there for everyone. Hi, John, you just popped up. Did you miss the, did you miss the film? Should I tell you again? You're muted. You're muted, my friend. So Robert, this is John Miller. I don't know if there may be another John on this Zoom call. Well, John Gage, my okay, my colleague and uh, friend from Silicon Valley and much of my professional life popped up and I'm just really glad to see him since he's so important to me. And also I mentioned you, John, to uh, Scott Nisbet, who I'm working with now, who has a couple of companies in Silicon Valley. And one of them is uh, Arian Bio, which makes uh, COVID testing equipment and so forth. So we kind of have this 
technology and biotech component to this conversation along with you know alaskan social and health issues and environmental issues and so forth so as i mentioned if you weren't uh um here for the entire screening john the film is on uh climatechangeishere.com which is the website that i created for this project so it's easy to review and so forth and john miller you were saying Oh, um, thank you very much, Robert. I'm so honored to be involved with this group. There's uh, so much wonderful thinking going on. I really want to acknowledge Patrick Anderson's thanks. It's been wonderful to know and work with him for the last five years. I'd like to add one footnote to Shelley Vindiola's um, presentation, if I may. And Shell, it was wonderful working with you at the Stillaguamish tribe now a decade ago, so we can age ourselves a little bit. Um, the dams that Shelley referred to are the Seattle City Light dams that are now 100 years old on the Skagit River that block salmon migration, and they are up for relicensing. So this is a very much um, a live issue for folks that are familiar with the Skagit Basin. And it is Shelley's tribe, the Swinomish tribe, as well as the Upper Skagit tribe and the Soxhawatl tribe that are very actively working to get fish passage um, included and heck, maybe even get the lower dam, the gorge dam taken out before it gets relicensed. Um, Robert, thanks again for including me in this. Sure, you've been, you've been a wonderful colleague to me and helpful. We met actually when I made Unconquering the Last Frontier, which was about dam removal on the Elwha River. Yes. I remember flying up there with projector in case and we had big rolls of film and John jumped in and said, let's get this screening going. And I, I always remember that day. Hey, thanks. Physical uh, work there in those old times. Um, and Enrique Lanz Oka, you have a question. Yes, Robert. Hi, how are you? Oh, congratulations, obviously, for your film. I have to say, fantastic. Uh, yes, I have a question, um, especially for Patrick and Shelley and John. Um, I am going to say everybody here. Yeah. And it is about the educational system. How do you think we can? put together, I am going to say, the intellectual, the scientific method with the traditional knowledge and wisdom in the schools. How can we put this together? How can we teach uh, our students uh, having that type of combination of these uh, different intellectual systems? Thank you. Wow. <laughs> um, Enrique, you want to solve the problems of the world all at once. I, uh, I, I, I love watching um, um, football and, and basketball. John, my buddy, is a hockey player. Um, I have a little struggle with hockey because I don't understand uh, the game, but I've not invested the time to understand. The, 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 what your question brings out to me is that we have not done a good job of teaching people that a football game is four quarters long. And if you're down by two or three touchdowns or two or three uh, touchdowns in the beginning, you wait 
um, you continually try to refine your approach every moment of the game. When you fail at one play, um, you're constantly thinking about the next step. What I tried to say is that Dr. Land's research indicates we have lost the ability to be creative. And the first step back to trying to uh, reawake the creativity um, is that I, I left out an important part because of uh, my need to be brief. And that is that when Dr. Land tested five-year-olds, 97.5% of them were, were functionally creative geniuses. We teach it out of them. So I think the first step is to recognize uh, something that I talk about quite frequently, uh, and, and that is um, the Stockdale paradox, which was uh, recounted to us by Jim Collins in his book called Good to Great, is a very simple concept. It states that we need to acknowledge the brutal truths of our existence, but retain an undying hope that we will succeed. Uh, and that's a four-quarter game. The brutal truth of the first quarter might be that you have fallen behind by three touchdowns, or in John's case, by one goal in the, in the first period. Uh, and you have to overcome that because one goal in hockey is a, can be a huge burden. Three touchdowns in football can be a huge burden, but there are many examples of them being overcome. So I think, uh, Enrique, the, the trick is, first of all, to understand that if you are teaching, you need to acknowledge the brutal truth, uh, despite the, um, I, I guess, the, the need that we have to feel wanted and loved. And uh, the brutal truth is not always kind. Uh, and, and the brutal truth is that, uh, and I've been a professor at a university, we've been part of a system that does not teach creative thinking uh, or innovative thinking. Um, and that if we can begin to overturn the tide, begin to look at it like uh, the Rogers innovation curve. If we have a few early adopters, they're going to be the ones who talk to the next level. They're gonna talk to their peers and saying, look at what I learned. I think this is really good and then we, and, and I'm getting uh, overly technical, but then we go into the systems two thinking that Daniel Kahneman and, and Amos Tversky came up with, uh, but it's not going to be an easy change. We have to approach it step by step. That's the whole methodology uh, behind the community readiness model. Uh, once you hit that critical point of early uh, of uh, early adopters, you're, you're beyond, not early adopters, early majority. When you hit that critical point, the change will happen very quickly. So that's what I would suggest in terms of trying to change the minds is look at the students that you have that you can influence because of your position uh, and begin to acquaint them, learn the topics of divergent thinking. Um, you know, I don't know what John recalls about that, but uh, when you're asking people for thoughts and ideas in an area where their livelihood is affected, they pretty much shut up. Uh, that, and when you are affecting students who depend on a grade from you, they're not going to do much other than parrot back to you what it is that you are uh, saying to them. So open up their minds uh, and to, to thoughts that you provide uh, a, a link to and let them do the thinking uh, and, and try to encourage that. So uh, anyway, I, I hope that made some sense, Enrique.
I just want to piggyback on what Patrick was sharing um, and totally agree with your um, description of, you know, what, what could happen in terms of, uh, I guess you could say, um, embracing this knowledge that points back at, you know, the creativity that once was. And I would have to say that the public school system, as well as the mission missionary system, the missions system that uh, sort of was intended to wipe out a culture, way of knowing and being, uh, cultures, indigenous native cultures of this continent. Um, but I do like what Greg Rukahete um, says in his native science book. And we, we teach that, um, I've, I've taught at Northwest Indian College, um, cultural sovereignty and part of that work um, that Gregory Kahete has been doing is about indigenous thought and create just creation and then the creativity um, within all of us as indigenous beings of the earth. And so he really brings it out in a powerful way and in a very poetic way, I must say. It's it's uh, just the writing is creative in and of itself because he usually starts it off with a, a little story or a little antidote from the culture that he comes from. He's also very much, you know, of a the Buddhist persuasion. He spends time in Bhutan. Um, and he's just a real phenomenal world thinker. And I, I, I like the way that um, he, he really brings out that indigenous knowledge um, through the work that he's doing, not only as a professor, but um, in, in doing the systems work that you're talking about, Patrick. And, and I think that, that there, there's a lot to be said about um, encouraging students to go into planning of some sort. You know, like we have environmental sciences and there's students that are going into that field. There's, that field's been around and been very popular since the start of the environmental movement. And then along comes the environmental justice movement that is inclusive of the indigenous people and people of color who happen to be in the most impacted areas of the world. So we, that's why I was saying earlier, like we are the indicator species and the more that we can welcome, embrace, and not be fearful of things that are different, I think that we can begin to lift together and we can feel that huchusidad together. And so we're bringing out those key concepts and values in, in the language and starting with our own community. Part of that work is about wellness. I always say the work I do as a peacemaker and a mediator and a teacher is part of the wellness movement. And we have a long way to go because the earth is suffering and we know that and we see that and, and she will continue to cleanse. The question is, where do we stand as a human species upon an earth that is cleansing? And this is not new news. There's been prophecies about it. People, there's been warning signs and now it's in our face. But um, I like that, you know, how, how we, the, the hope for diversifying the work and being inclusive of, of people that are different and making a space for that to happen. And so as a peacemaker, we are welcoming people into our Protect Mother Earth subcommittee work who are interns 
at a local university, Western Washington State University and University of Washington. And we're walking them arm in arm and through an experience. And you can call it experiential learning, but really they're, they're being um, immersed in our culture at this moment in time. And they have a lot of talent, these young people. They have a lot of talent and wisdom. And so we wanna capture that and we wanna, you know, dance together and, and sort of weave that talent into you know what we're trying to striving to do our ultimate goal mediate mitigate and adapt the ultimate goal and hopefully we can do that together but i think that that past that part of me that says i'm getting older um as john miller was alluding to that we did work together <laughs> <laughs> at, I was at Stila Guamish for a little while when, when John and I met. And, uh, and I must say that, that there are a lot of tribes here, Stila Guamish being another one that is at the forefront of this, you know, are protecting our waterways and, and the salmon. And so it's, it's wonderful to see like-minded people and it's wonderful to meet new people who have great interests because of the water that we're all connected by and like the air that we all are connected by and we breathe. And so the hope is that we can do this together. We can find a way. And that was a, you know, I thank you for that question, Enrique. It's not that difficult if we put our, our hearts together and we, we just kind of find a pathway. Like I feel like you're really good at doing, Robert. You're really good at, you know, connecting those folks and telling that compelling story. Thank you. I want to ask John Gage because of his experience in education for so many years at Berkeley and uh, John F. Kennedy School governance at uh, Harvard. Uh, John, you may remember when we shot the film in uh, Curitiba, Brazil. It was uh, about a process in, uh, of design and urban planning and we referred to it kind of as a smart cities. Uh, project, but that's really a buzzword. It was a multi-dimensional learning opportunity where we uh, we practiced uh, design thinking essentially. And uh, you may recognize the potentials and the project uh, line. I'm old enough that now I'm stealing from myself. So I guess that eventually happens, but we've discussed this before. So John, you'd have some thoughts? Well, I, I'm so happy you brought that up. I, I was thinking about a, that a few days ago because the uh, Jamie Lerner, uh, who was the mayor of Curitiba, uh, then went on for the United Nations to head uh, the um, essentially housing uh, city, the global city alliances. Uh, and he's a powerful figure. He's retired to some degree from this, but Jamie Lerner's voice in integrating uh, concerns everyone has with the flows in the environment, which when it erupted, caused everybody uh, terrible problems, uh, being able to understand those flows in, a, in, a, in the complicated and interrelated way they, uh, they manifest themselves, that was his design imperative. And there have been a number of smart city conferences uh, that he sponsored using United Nations uh, uh, UN Habitat 
uh, money. And I, I think it's worth looking into uh, that environment, the, that community, that giant sort of international consortium, especially as the Glasgow, as the climate meetings come up um, in the next, what, two months or so. Um, well, so, uh, yeah, I think there's a, a common design awareness. The, the, the world of arch the architects, the urban planners um, that look back on decisions that were made without considering flows of water, flows of fish, flows of uh, the natural environment that just blocked things and didn't really have any tools to feel that impact. Uh, now we're beginning to realize that we do have new ways of seeing and new ways of measuring and new ways of, of understanding these kinds of interrelationships. So uh, Curachiva was a, uh, for those that hadn't really paid attention to the ways that the politics of a city shape everything, uh, when he became mayor and started blocking vehicles downtown and adding mass transit routes that took really paid attention to actual daily human transit paths, uh, it unloaded the streets of vehicles. It allowed people with the minimum environmental impact to get from home to work and back. Uh, I, I still remember the little libraries that he built all around. So yeah. knowledge could be exchanged inside communities that ordinarily might not meet each other. So there's some lessons to be learned from all that. So, And, and those libraries were built architecturally design uh, in, a, in a design methodology to resemble lighthouses. That's right. Remember, which work, it works on a conceptual level, the light of learning, the light of education. It's a, literally a lighthouse. I thought that was pretty good. That's pretty good. Robert, Patrick. Yes. I, I thank you, John. You, you're, uh, as Robert knows, um, I, I like conversations and your contribution is uh, um, both important because Robert did share with me the work you guys did there, but you used a phrase that it took me a long time to understand uh, the concept of flow. Um, I have a particular mindset about it uh, that I'll explain, but first of all, I'd like to hear your uh, explanation of your understanding of the concept you described as flow. Well, it's, it's uh, looking at the design of the environment, those portions of it to depend on continuity. So water flow, electrical flow, uh, the design of information networks, the fiber optic networks, that's a con continuous, that fiber is a long, long string. Uh, so everything that depends upon continuous flow, uh, when you turn to the engineering disciplines dealing with them, uh, well, the civil crowd is dealing with pipes and water movement and wastewater movement. Uh, the money they spend to dig up a city to put a pipe in is a big expenditure. And rarely did they ever think of talking to the other continuity people, the fiber people or the power people and combine that expenditure with putting 
fiber along the sewer line or the water line or putting power lines in the same hole. So you ended up with trying to figure out how do we get the most result for expenditures we make uh, that in fact, it was more a human problem. These communities never talked to each other, although they had the same design problem about how do I make something get from here to there uh, in a continuous, a continuous. I mean, here in Berkeley, where I am, we've just banned installation of any new gas appliances in any new homes. Get rid of the gas. And so the goal is to get the gas out of all those pipes under the ground, which cost a lot of money to put in. And the proposal's always been, well, once you've got a, a, an expensive continuous hole from here to there, blow fiber optic through it, which is what happened to many of the oil pipelines passing across the country. When they got the oil out and put the fiber in, it turned out to be a more profitable <laughs> proposal for a lot of the... Tulsa made a lot of money, as it turned out, about not using oil, which you would accept. I think the Oklahoma people, the Tulsans, would be focused on. And instead, they blew transcontinental fiber through those empty oil pipelines. So that's the sort of notion uh, of flow that I... And there's, of course, flow of money, which is a whole other <laughs> flow issue. <laughs> Uh, Wonderful. Thank you for that. So I'm going to share a link to uh, a blog about the flow concept that I learned from Daniel Goleman. It put um, words to an experience that I've had only a few times, but he, he talks about it in, in terms of uh, uh, neural uh, flow and uh, mm -hmm. It, what what you're describing uh, in neural flow uh, takes place in our own brain and, and mind, but you guys engaged it to a very high level uh, from from the uh, videos that I looked at uh, about the explanation of what happened. And so I'll go ahead and, and share that um, uh, with you. It's it's just wonderful uh, that that you brought that concept up and and uh, helped to give me some. Uh, additional um, framework to view that in. Thanks, Robert. Thank you, Patrick. And uh, Robin Carney, and you got all this started. Do you have any feelings about where it's gone? Maybe she's not here or muted. No, I'm here. Oh, okay, awesome. So cool. Thank you. <laughs> I'm listening intently and I'm just really happy that you pulled it all together. I knew you could. I've seen your movies and I remember meeting you in Seattle a very long time ago now and ever since then I wanted to do some work with you and I'm glad that we got a chance to do that and especially I was home furloughed so that kind of helped me stay in uh, the real world as they say. And I know we have a lot of work to do. I'm home today and the wind, I swear it's gonna blow the roof off my mom's mobile home. And it's just a reminder of how much the weather has changed. I know Patrick was talking about that. And um, Larry, when I interviewed Larry 12 years ago, I guess it was, um, he was talking about the sea level rising and it flooding the villages and how 
um, the young men were having to go to Anchorage to go get jobs and literally leave their culture behind in every, you know, in every way, every aspect of their life, you know, fishing, hunting, all of that. And so much gets lost um, because of that. It's a consequence of climate change. And I would like to see that talked about a lot more. Um, I know the other um, person you had in the film too, he was talking about that as well. And it leads to depression and suicide. Uh, it's well. deep. It is deep what is happening here. And I think people who are being affected by the pandemic are finally uh, in a way getting it, what's happened to indigenous people, you know, to have to face isolation and loss. And, you know, same with all the victims of the fires. Just, it's not about, you know, one race of people now. We all are being deeply affected by this. And my, I think one of the things I thought would be really wonderful now that we've got Deb um, Holland, I hope I'm saying her last name right, you know, up in Washington, DC, historically, you know, a Native American woman in charge of the Department of Interior. I am so glad I lived long enough to see that happen. And she's going to do a lot. And we have an avenue now um, to make some really important change to help save our earth. And I'm really proud of my cousin, Shelly. Um, that's a whole nother story that was uh, not a coincidence. I think spirit has been working overtime to bring us all together um, to rally around the mother earth. And, and I was so glad that I came home and got to meet my, my cousin Shelly and get enrolled in my Swinomish tribe. And I'm very proud of my tribe. They're really leading the charge. Um, yeah, let's, and, let's explain real briefly. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but you lived in California. You were a, a ranger, a park ranger, state of California. Yes. And yes. You, you worked up on the Mendocino Coast for a while, lived there, and, and then you found out you were of Swinomish heritage and you and your mother returned. And that was a long trek for you. So that's what you're referring. Right, right. The emotional. Yep. Definitely. So even, you know, before I found out I was Swinomish, I got into the park service because that was where my passion was. And I liked giving campfire programs and talking about the environment. I liked having a role where I was actually in the field, you know, looking out for mother nature. And, um, you know, it's been, I've, I've led some interesting chapters in my lives and it all seems to be kind of interconnected. And even being part of this group, you know, I really believe in destiny and fate and all of those things. And to hear you uh, interview people that I've talked to about climate change 12 years later and things are getting worse. And that's what you and I've had many, many talks about, you know, things are getting worse. What are we gonna do? What now that, you know, now that everybody's you know, greatly aware of our situation. Um, now here's the call to action. And so I think one thing as far as the youth go, I think I'd love to see a lot of money get funneled into 
the park service and also into the um, job corps, conservation corps, you know, where you bring this age group, you know, 16 to 25, I think it is, you know, that generation, you know, bring all of that back, you know, get those youth, you know, back out into the field during stream clearance and um, removing fuel you know, from the forest, you know, that's just piled up. It's just tender. And, you know, and not only that, it just gets them connected. It's like being a gardener. It's like putting your hands in the earth and then you're connected and you're, then you're committed, you know, to helping make this change, if that makes sense. So Mary Monk, you've been a little quiet over there listening and taking it all in. Um, Mary is the uh, partner, partner forever, I will say, of the great oceanographer Walter Monk, who is, uh, was well known for his 70 years at Scripps Institution of Oceanography as a professor and researcher, and his story is fascinating indeed. And he and Roger Revelle, Revelle, Revelle College at UCSD is named after him and others, Charles David Keeling, did initial research in climate change as early as the mid 50s, you were telling me. Actually 80 years at Scripps. And Incredible. Yes. And John, John Gage, just so you know, Mary, John Gage uh, went to Newport Harbor High School where we now have this tremendous oil spill off the coast of the <laughs> beaches where he used to go surfing, body wow. surfing and whatever. And so here we unite around that issue. Wow. I really appreciate the opportunity to learn about the incredible lives and stories of the Alaskan Native Indians and uh, Eskimos. And um, I there is so much that needs to be done. It's hard to know where to start, right? So where do we start, Patrick? That that is Ellie really kind of answered that question, but I just thought you probably yeah. have no. That, that is a real, real piece of wisdom, uh, Mary. That where do we start is always the critical question. But I want to go back to Robin real quick and thank you for for you're being a park ranger and, and uh, looking at things like AmeriCorps and VISTA and, and jobs conservation. Um, I shared with Robert some knowledge about the ocean, Mary, that I did not have uh, until a young ranger named Brian, who was from Gustavus and with the Glacier Bay National Park, he, he was talking about how tidal glaciers interact with the waters around it, reducing the salinity, increasing the productivity of the feedstock around there. And then he talked about the blob, the, 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 how the blob impacted the, the gray whales that migrate to Glacier Bay and for a period of time they were starved. Um, but Robert, um, when, when you ask about what is the first step, I go back <clears throat> to the community readiness model. It's knowledge and experience. 
um, not yours, but understanding the level of knowledge and experience of your community through an assessment. Uh, and it doesn't take that much in the way of effort. So most people don't know the community readiness model, but they basically uh, on six or seven interviews with knowledgeable people uh, understand the community and then put it at a level uh, between one and nine um, that gives you a starting point and then you begin the process of education. So uh, we've done that, we're doing that. Um, I learned about um, the uh, removing dam projects, uh, working for John, uh, got more intimate knowledge with it. And uh, if, if you haven't noticed, I'm willing to talk to anybody about anything. I, I am a closet introvert, but um, when we have conversations, I think the important part is to share the knowledge and the structure of the community readiness model, the structure of the podcast. And, and uh, I, I know from looking up uh, Robin on LinkedIn just now that she has a podcast as well. Uh, and then the work that's being done by the Greenbelt Society, now that, that's the starting point. We just need to know where we're at. I would have one suggestion, um, uh, Robert, is that too often when I hear from other people, it's you got to do this, you got to do that. And that's why I talk about divergent thinking. Okay. Let's think about having, uh, letting people have their ideas and finding small pieces of the solution to the problems. Uh, simple things like, um, you know, if someone has an idea of uh, getting rid of plastic bags, um, which, which is already out there, but I'm just saying it's a small idea, but if you get rid of plastic bags, you don't have that huge problem in the oceans. Um, and to be able to ask young people, Robin, I, I loved what you said about young people, uh, Shelly, the same thing. Let them have an idea that they can work on in a small measure within their home community. Publicize those ideas. And Robert, um, uh, you, you know how to do that. Uh, a video about young people who are thinking of an idea that helps their community in a small way. <clears throat> what I learned through my <clears throat> engagement with the concept of lean management, uh, Enrique, that green belt concept that I spoke to you about uh, in its alternate form is referred to as lean thinking, lean management. Uh, you let people have their ideas and they make many small improvements. <clears throat> millions and millions of small improvements add up to a really big thing. So that's all I really want to leave with the group is mm -hmm. that uh, let's let people participate in the solutions. Let's not tell them what has to be done. Let's let them um, engage that innovative, creative mindset that Dr. Land proved disappears by the time we're 25 uh, and bring them back into the world of thinking of, of solutions and not criticize them for it. Uh, we learn because of the mistakes that we make. And if we allow people to make mistakes, they'll look and, and if we encourage them to take the next step, okay, that didn't work. So what's the next thing that would work? That would be my suggestion. And I'm anxious to hear what other suggestions are as well. Well, Maureen Caldwell just wrote a wonderful uh, text. I guess that was to me. And thank you for the nice compliment. And Maureen is my colleague and friend, and we're working on things together. So what you got? Well, I want to say thank you for everybody. I just had the pleasure of meeting Mary and Scott and all of your really knowledgeable. And my 
background is I, I went to Scripps and I studied the desert. But when I graduated, I didn't really have any counselor and there weren't really any jobs. And I didn't know about, I wasn't interested in Genentech and cells research. So I didn't really have anywhere to go. I wish I had known all of you. So I ended up as a court reporter, took a lot of depots. And then I got into real estate and I found out uh, there's all a different way to present. And there's people that are in committees there that go in and work with city councils, but there's also these crazy marketers, sort of the kinds of communication that you don't like about the corporate world could help us. But also the work I'm doing with the legislative committee on ARPV is part of the, it's NARAB, it's that when black realtors were allowed to be realtors in 1947, they started NARAB. So I'm on that legislative committee and we decided to be very focused because we wanted to talk to each city council member and only about three things. There's lots of legislation that we said where you start, but we didn't want to get scattered. So we've picked on each one individually and it's worked out really well, but there's a lot of other legislation that we couldn't bring up. We wanted to, that would help other realtors and we have large groups. And that's what I was telling Robert. It's been my passion for the last three years to try to get realtors to understand the environment and what we do in building really affects it. And it's not good, but they just hear from everybody. Oh, I have to make this cap rate. I have to get this. And you know, I, how much money they don't work on it, but there's so many realtors just suck more information and they love hearing it. We have talks and we care more. The realtor association is given as an association has given more than almost any other association. They give out tons of funds to grants. And so I want people to be able to present it. The one thing they want is they want it related to real estate. Well, there's a lot well, like SB nine is coming out for ADUs and in Berkeley probably heard about that. I was John was talking. It's supposed to help affordable housing that it can have an unintended consequence of hurting a lot of the uh, waters. I mean, Mark, Robert and I started talking about this several years ago about marshes and waters, and we are writing about plastic bags and plastic and stuff from the Costco, uh, but they can't relate. Realtors can't relate it. They just hear, oh, I want grandma. We're going to help this affordable housing group. We want grandma to stay in her house so that ADU has to be built with SB9. It uh, evades the city control. It goes straight to the state and it could skip all those inspections. And as nebulous or as ill-equipped as you think the city is, they won't have it. So instead of having requiring a tree in your yard, which would be nice, or birds or some waterway coming down from, you know, from uh, Mount Diablo, you're going to have a building with no, no parking and no consequence because it goes straight, straight through the state. So there's lots of legislation and we can bring that kind of thing to realtors. And I've been trying to bring it to my kids and what they, they don't understand. They're going to school, they don't have time. So I've been trying to send little tidbits to them one, one summer on the coast. And we just had the benefit of meeting Mary and it really helped them th start thinking about it. So it's nice just to connect to meet in person and do little bits at a time, but we're on this other focus group. So that's what I've focused on. And I really like that Robert, you know, we had all this meeting, I got to meet all of you. And if any of you have a, a topic that you think we could blend with realtors, there's 80 people on the call I talked on every Monday. Uh, it's a, a pretty well-known group. He's lovely. He's, you know, it's bigger than some of the other groups and it's really sort of fun. But they, one thing about this group is they let anybody talk. So if you think of something you would like that we can relate to them or legislation, 
that would help. You know, I love to hear that we can get young. I noticed that uh, Scott Nisbet popped back up. Hi, Scott. Are you muted? Well, he's probably muted. I'm not hearing from him, although he's joined. I wanted to introduce him to you, John, for various reasons. And um, Maureen, since you and John are in Berkeley, maybe you guys should talk. And you're muted. Great idea. <laughs> I'd love to do that. Thanks. And I, I had the pleasure of meeting Scott, who's really nice. We went met at our, my favorite tea house up in, uh, up in Oakland here. So yeah, I'd love to meet you, John. That'd be really nice. Terrific. I'll send you my, uh, yes, let me work, send you a note <laughs> right now. Good. Um, Just yeah, wanted so to also. Go ahead. Sorry, Robert. That's okay. I wanted to just add a, add a, one last thing, and that is um, in the work that we're we are doing, the intention is to embed the language um, because we have a lot of curriculum that's been developed in our little small village, and and we would like to have that foundation of that curriculum that goes into the public school and into the youth programs to be the language, and that we're bringing out words that connect us back to those stories about our relationship with the work, with the earth and the reciprocity, um, how we how we carry ourselves, hence the values. But most importantly, and I think that this is a, I'm seeing more activity around land trust work, around conservation work, as Robin brought out, but there's different ways to invest in land that uh, you want to try and protect and you want to try and have led by people that perhaps have connection, as Patrick was bringing out earlier, that is ancient knowledge to a place. And so one of the things that we're being very intentional about is we're, we're, we are developing curriculum around leadership and how we actually make decisions. And so we like to use consensus and we, well, we like to establish our own protocol. And it's very powerful if you ever get a chance to come to a canoe journey event here in the Northwest in the post Salish territories, the Salish Sea. It's kind of hard because we're in this pandemic, but um, they have protocol for five days at the, at the host village. And Robert, I know you've been there, you've been, uh, a witness to that and there's a lot of power that comes when you follow the protocol and the cultural way you don't you know mix business or perhaps um, politics my uncle Smitty Hilaire my late uncle James Hilaire he always said that um you can't you can't bring politics into this work mm -hmm. you can't you it doesn't belong there. And so there's something to be said about that wisdom that is ancient. And so what we're doing, because I'm part of this land trust over there in Whatcom, um, where John Miller is at, but we're, we are trying to develop our own protocol with people that are different than us, but that have the same intention for the land and really want to prioritize the use of the land for wellness and healing, like a healing center. 
So just some things to think about. I mean, there's a big movement. It's called the land back movement. It's very, what you call this new word, rematriation. You know, it's about the women speaking for the earth, speaking about what happens with the land like they used to before the treaty was signed and pre-colonization. And so I just thought I'd, I'd you know, offer that because we're prioritizing how we create our own protocol because Quite frankly, I don't know who Robert's, Robert is of Robert's Rules of Order, but I know that our tribe does use that at uh, a leadership level. But I have to say that as a peacemaker, I was taught a different way. And, you know, some people uh, that consensus, that word consensus means to me that we make time to spend with each other. That relationship building is priority. And how you do that is we don't just you know, say hi and bye. We really spend time together like we have today. And I, I think that's power. That's, that's really powerful when we can do that, just the relationship building part. And that comes with the protocol because in our protocol uh, that we've created with Protect Mother Earth Subcommittee at Swinomish, we wanna use that as a model for the other programming work that we're going to introduce to our young people because embedded in that protocol are our traditional values. And what terms that are coming out now, my late uncle Chet Caillou, he said, we are loving, caring, and sharing people. And so that's now being translated. And we know that with language, it has to evolve, just like nature has to evolve. Because back then in my ancestors' time, there wasn't a table. It wasn't even a chair. So we, 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 we have to evolve the language so that it's meaningful today. And so that we can actually be present with our young people as they begin to pick it up. And hopefully it becomes with, you know, the values that are embedded in that. And so anyway, just some other things I want to share and thank you for listening. Yeah, I, I had listened to Mary Monk and she said with regard to her foundation that it's not political. So I'm really glad that you, you said that because we, how we construct our conversations, what words we choose are extremely important. And in my work as a filmmaker, I'm always cognizant of this. I'm listening to other people primarily. I'm not projecting my opinions. I'm not projecting my wishes, but I wanna listen. And the more I hear, the more I connect. Like just today, there's connections between people that have taken place because of listening. And as Patrick knows, this is, the beginning of design thinking. We, we can't connect the dots if we're not listening. It's pretty obvious. So to stop talking all the time and start listening is extremely important. And, and to gather that, I mean, I learned to be a bit of an ethnographer because I'm not Swinomish. I'm not clown. So I've had to listen to understand the messages that are being said rather than twisting them in my brain, you know, to meet some pre-existing concept, pre-existing cultural bias, right, Patrick? Uh, ab absolutely. And, and let me share, um, I, I have conversations with lots of people, it's called reading, um, and people who are far smarter than myself. Um, and then listening, um, as Robert was talking about, is something I learned about from a professor by the name of Edgar Schein, who wrote a book called Humble Inquiry, uh, based on a concept that I 
tried to learn about when I was running healthcare centers called motivational interviewing. Uh, and so a lot of what Shelly is, is talking about um, with, with Robert's rules, um, I have been the parliamentarian for the National Congress of American Indians, the Alaska Federation of Natives, and a whole bunch of others. Uh, and you can't always get people on the same page. And so what I've discovered uh, about consensus is it really is a tyranny of the minority. Uh, and that's what we're facing when we look at, um, in the Rogers Innovation Curve, uh, the, 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 the folk who are laggards, who are resistors, is that um, if you have a consensus-based concept and you're going to try to bring them in, the brain science says you're not going to be able to do it. Uh, so uh, that conversation I had with Dr. Shine about humble inquiry really makes me focus in. So I'm not <clears throat> sitting here taking notes. <clears throat> I probably would never look at the notes again, but when Mr. Gage says something about flow, uh, I want to know what his thoughts were uh, about flow. Um, when um, questions are asked, I like to listen to the answers. I may talk a lot, but when your turn comes up, um, I'm not turning to something uh, else unless it's to clarify uh, information. Uh, and, and I think it's critical that we adopt that process of really, truly, deeply listening, not from the point of uh, I want to understand you so I can beat you, but from the point of, I want to understand you so that we can know each other better. Well, Patrick, when you, when you sent that note about flow, you deepened the conversation considerably because that's a, it, a personal flow. I'd been talking about the mechanical flows of water and well, I don't know where the world where physics rules. And, but the note you pointed to was that, inner opening to a feeling of flow of of being at the moment uh, you, the example of the fighter pilots the that transition in a human into a, a kind of state of of being deeply immersed in, in in experience feeling at one in some sense with things and that's that issue of the protocols the rule whether it's robert's rules of order just some human attempt to provide a space to open to other people's expressions of what they think and to, to try to avoid the tyranny of the minority uh, by a protocol of uh, it's your turn to talk or it's everyone should listen to this or that kind of an intervention is not acceptable in this setting. You know, those, those just as we're making it up in this conversation about who can talk at what point, who gets to talk for how long, how do we handle disagreement? Uh, that is a deeper notion of flow, I think. So. It's something that when you have a camera in your hands, yes, that becomes deeply ingrained. How else would you configure the world in your camera or your mind or your edit suite or whatever? You know, and as I've worked, I've got this gotten deeper and deeper and deeper. You know, it's no longer um, arguments. It's no longer discussion points. It's understanding what's beneath them and trying to connect well, them. Well, you, and you have this other world where you've taken the image now. Now you can, it's frozen in some sense. So you, in the moment, 
are evoking as much as you can, capturing it. But now you move into a different mindset of editing all that. Right. How do you do that? Completely different mindset. <laughs> that, that was my observation um, with Robert as well. I, I, I called him a, uh, uh, what was it, a, a filmmaker, a videographer, and he, he protested somewhat, uh, saying he had taken a turn. But John, the, the, uh, again, my conversations through reading Jay Forrester's work in Systems Dynamics tells me that what you were talking about and um, what Daniel Goleman are talking about are one and the same because it's all a construct in our mind. So when we look at Forrester's stocks and flows, uh, and we fix a point in time, and then we try to build off of that. That's exactly what you guys did. Um, and and I think Forrester's discipline was actually um, urban uh, dynamics. Um, and he did a lot of work in that. So the connectivity between what you guys were doing and uh, system dynamics and, and the uh, mind uh, that Shelley is talking about all mixed together. And it's our job to try and understand that. It's a work I've been doing for uh, well over a decade. And, and I know that when we're talking um, uh, about trying to impact the Secretary of Interior, Deb Holland, uh, I've been trying to influence um, our, our political officials for a long time. Uh, suicide was mentioned early on in the uh, video. Uh, the Adverse Childhood Experience Study, which was done in San Diego, actually shows that if you have seven of the 10 studied adverse experiences, that 35% of your cohort uh, will attempt suicide in their lifetime versus 2.5% if you have zero of those uh, complex traumas uh, growing up. It took me eight or nine years to even get the Indian Health Service leadership to look at it. <clears throat> um, and it took me bringing the uh, principal investigator to a National Congress of American Indians convention. I think it was about 2011 or 12 um, to get some people thinking about it. But the fact is, is that some people thought about it and a resolution showed up at NCAI actually looking at the concept of childhood acquired trauma. And Shelley, I know your experience with that uh, at Swinomish because we all are within Indian country because our data is two to three times the level of trauma in, in the white community. Uh, it has a severe impact, but getting that knowledge out is really, really difficult. Um, that study was done and finished in 1998. And here we are, uh, the third decade afterwards, still trying to get people to know and understand uh, that this whole concept even exists. Scott Nisbet, are you there? I am. I am here. Yes. Well, good. <laughs> I'm really glad so to see you. Nice to that. Yes, I'm little connectivity problems today. Yeah, I'm so, so sorry. Well, nice, all of this is being what a, recorded. So I'm. What a wonderful discussion, and uh, also um, your film, Robert, and really. Uh, it's wonderful to meet everyone and, and listening into this conversation. So thank you. And you're down there in Silicon Valley with John. It looks like you're up. That's right. Yes. Uh, for today, I'm in Berkeley today. So, uh, and then otherwise San Francisco. So. Okay, good. Well, now you guys know each other. That's right. Hi, John. <laughs> and nice to see you, Maureen, too. Pleasure. You know, there's one there's question about how do you influence things? Uh, it really- Yes, exactly. Uh, uh, Mary Mary Monk, I, I, she she 
I hope she'd remember the, the she and Walter were participants in an organization called the Ocean Elders. So just structuring that brought in the monks as ocean elders and that influence of the elders who have are the leaders that the, for, uh, whose careers, whose lives have been, are, are symbols in some sense for, for the younger generations to emulate. That, that Ocean Elders Organization, which, uh, and the, now the Walter Monk Foundation, uh, allowed people, Sylvia Earle and Walter Monk and others, to, to have a platform in some sense to try to influence globally how we approach the, the oceans. So. Um, we need more of those kinds of organizations. Yes, that can bring the yeah. You right, you jumped right on topic there, John, because Scott and I are talking about you know what we call public relations, or I just hate that term. So now I say right relations or impact or something like that. We want to have an impact, and we have a particular project with Mary Monk and the Walter Monk Foundation that to preserve Walter's legacy, to preserve his home, and Mary's yep. home which is being sold by the University of California. So we are hoping to represent a group that will buy it. Oh. And um, so this is a very important thing. How do we make people aware How do we influence? of legacy? Yes. Right. And, the, and the requirements of upholding it. And I think particularly, you know, we have, a, in terms of talking points, we have the climate issue. We have the oil spill issue. We have the importance of education in general. And, and there's a, have an MOU at the Walter Monk Foundation with the LA City School District, which is the largest in the nation. So when Mary asked, where do we start? We've, she's already started long, long, long time ago. The, the question more is about impact, outreach and results. And results usually have a time frame. And we did so much, you know, PR, right, for Sun. That's, that's what the Kurochiba story was about. It was about Sun is an advanced thinking company solving problems outside of its immediate domain by looking at people in other countries and taking into account their needs and structuring a solution that works for everybody and playing a role in that. And talking about it. Exactly. Uh, Robert, some things about this are so much fun. Um, I, I looked at the Ocean Elders website. Uh, I, I learned something new. I'm going to share it. Um, and uh, I think it's a good concept, Shelley, for us to talk about in Indian country, since we're so many of us are coastal people that we have our Ocean Elders identified. But just as a little aside, while I was at Princeton in the 1970s, Lisa Hallaby was a classmate. I didn't get to meet her, but it was real exciting when she became Queen Noor. Um, and uh, ended up marrying uh, the, the king or prince of Monaco. Um, and I see that she's an ocean elder as well. That's utilizing some real powerful, powerful uh, voices. And that's something that uh, um, I, I'm gonna chat with our National Congress of American Indian folk about uh, a native ocean elders. What do you think, Shelley? Two thumbs up. If she had four thumbs uh, and her mother was still there, <laughs> it would be four thumbs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and Scott and I were talking in this regard, you know, to build up the perhaps now known as the Walter Monk Global Ocean Think Tank, you know, which 
can be developed and created as, as a platform with a slightly different agenda. Um, we were uh, talking about how to, Scott, we were talking about how to find the right, right. voice, the, or the right voices, who are the right voices. Yeah, and what, you know, there are many um, organizations that want to protect the ocean and it's really making use of what Walter began and, uh, and, and Mary is continuing and using the, um, the physical location of uh, the house near Scripps and UCSD and the history of it to continue his legacy and be very specific, make it a think tank where people can come together on a specific issue and there's no shortage of issues uh, but it's making the focus there and i think that you know the legacy that is that house and is walter and mary um is to continue that in the future would be so helpful and that's my passion to, to help that and having robert and mary and uh, maureen thinking about this has been wonderful and i i, I just see it it would be a shame to let that legacy and that ability to bring divergent people together uh, to let that go away. And that's what's driving us to, to really push this think tank to come into existence. And yeah. I, I know that there is uh, one of the members of the um, uh, Ocean Elders is um, very much an advocate and, uh, you know, for the Native Americans and uh, so you might even connect with Gigi, um, the head of it, to see how you might work with them as well. And um, thank you, Robert. I, I, I scrolled down a little bit more. Uh, Nainoa Thompson is a part of that group. Um, oh. I, knew his, I knew his dad, Pinky. Uh, and in 1989, Sea Alaska Corporation, the board of which I served on at the time, donated two uh, white spruce logs that eventually became the Hawaii Loa, um, mm. the, the first uh, all wood ocean going canoe, uh, Nainoa and my late uncle, uh, wow. former Lieutenant Governor Byron Malott were like brothers. Um, and, and so we, we have other inroads into that, but Scott, one, one interesting yeah. um, uh, concept I'd like to bring up, uh, I shared this with Robert uh, we had a talk about the traditional halibut hook that um, we all use as Northwest Coast Indians, a carved halibut hook that's right. an amazing adaptation to uh, ocean health. But I also had hmm. a chance just recently to meet Ed Carrier, who is with the Suquamish tribe, uh, the, the home tribe of the chief uh, Seattle that my high school was named mm -hmm. after. And he described the cedar bark or spruce root and there were uh, other um, uh, fibers that he used, uh, and he recreated the first um, woven um, salmon uh, trap in ages, if I recall correctly, and I may not be correct wow. on that history, but there's a huge amount of traditional ecological knowledge that, ex that existed. Mm -hmm. I think it's disappearing somewhat, so that's why Shelley is talking about trying to bring some of this stuff back, but um, I'm certainly willing um, to lend what mm. little voice I have to those kinds of issues for native ocean elders and for traditional ecological knowledge to be incorporated into some of the work being done. Uh, and interestingly enough, we have a lot of casino tribes and a lot of uh, successful tribes who might be willing to fund efforts uh, like that. 
Mary? Is, is, there, is there any contact with the other indigenous peoples around the Arctic um, in Russia and Norway and such? Is there any organization that is of the Arctic people yet? I'm glad you asked that question. It's called the Inuit Circumpolar Conference, the ICC. Thank you. Yes. Um, and they are the parent organization of a lot of cooperative efforts, one of which is the International Whaling Commission. Mm -hmm. uh, I know from my Nia Bay exposure that they have a treaty with the U.S. that allows them to harvest whales. Uh, and they're currently in front of the IWC trying to get an allocation of five whales. Um, mm -hmm. But, but uh, yes, it, it's a, a huge net network. And then, uh, although I... I'm not sure of its uh, total range, but the United Nations is working on connecting all of these different efforts, and I don't know what they're doing currently. Uh, but the ICC, um, mm -hmm. it uh, rotates the leadership among uh, different countries, different areas, and, and I've right. been to two two ICC conferences. They, uh, uh, because if, if you want, uh, Doctor. Daily Sambo, D-A-L-E-E. -E. She has been intimately connected with them for decades, uh, Scott, and I'd be happy to try to put you in contact well, with her. It would, it would be fascinating because this is one area that Mary, um, Robert, and I were talking about was, you know, as a think tank, you know, subject is the Arctic area. And everyone talks about the countries of, you know, Norway, Russia, U.S., but that that can't be the only people included in this that can't be the only entities and uh we really want to involve everyone in in if there is going to be a uh, think tank uh group uh we want about the arctic we want everyone included so i'm really that i'm very happy to hear that that there is a, a organization ready to participate and uh sheila walt watt cloud here mm -hmm. uh, is the uh, individual that has worked with Ocean Elders. I see she's emeritus now, um, but she's environmental, cultural, and human rights advocate um, very much for um, the Native Americans, uh, especially up in the uh, Arctic area. So I don't know if you're familiar with her, but she would be a, an expert. Yeah. Yeah, there's an interesting uh, piece of legislation that the Biden administration signed on day one, which is known as the Northern Bering Sea Climate Resilience Area. Mm -hmm. And it's an area of the Arctic that extends up to roughly Kivalina from the southern, more southern regions uh, north of the Pribilofs, but uh, beginning maybe around the Yukon Kuskokwim Delta. And the problems there included the dreaded bottom trawling that right. John Gage and I have talked about. Uh, and this was eliminated by virtue of the executive order in that location. Right. And also there's some restrictions on oil drilling and, and so forth in, in that area, right. specifically because of the, um, the actions of the Bering Strait um, as a kind of funnel uh, seasonally mm -hmm. for migration of species from the North Pacific up to the Arctic regions. Mm -hmm. And um, it's an area that supports the various species with uh, high blooms of plankton and so forth, where it's a, a marine uh, um, nursery, essentially, uh, and Great. nutrition supporter. Am I saying this correctly, Patrick? I think so, yeah. 
Natalie is kind of more the ocean scientist here and she's, she's gone, but, and Enrique, do you have a thought uh, about that? The funnel. No, really, I don't have any commentary about that, Robert, thank you. Right, so you have the migration of um, whale species and, and salmon and um, other, you know, other species that go, um, that go south uh, at a certain time of year and then back up north. And so when we we're watching the video back Kivalina, that's one of the issues that the people are dependent on their regular runs of salmon and their traditional ways of hunting. And even if it's whale, whaling, they have to get out to the area where the whales are migrating in order to, to har harvest them. But that's the, that's the traditional way. And it's, it's disappearing as all these species behave differently, move differently, feed differently, and are impacted by um, ship strikes and uh, uh, oil production and uh, bottom trawling and factory um, factory fishing and so forth. But so it's a very delicate area that impacts the health of the Arctic on numerous levels. Uh, yeah, it, it certainly is. And, and I'm still with Robert following up on the research um, of tidal glaciers. They've um, had a huge impact um, with the decline of tidal glaciers in, in Glacier Bay. But I wanted just to, to let Scott know that Dr. Daly Sambo Doro is right. now the president of the ICC. And I sent you a link to that. If, oh, great. Thank if you. you want to if you want to uh, get an introduction, I've, I've not had interaction with her for quite a while, but we were all a part of the same uh, 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 muckrakers group uh, back when we first came out uh, decades ago, and she's ascended much higher than I have. So I'll, okay. I'll be happy to arrange Thank for you. an introduction. I think there's great knowledge there that uh, can, can help uh, benefit uh, your efforts. That would be great. Thank you. And the retreat of tidal glaciers and the impacts on nutrient flow from the land via the glaciers to uh, spawning uh, salmon newly released who are dependent on that nutrient base uh, is going to hopefully be podcast 14. So we're going to explore that in, in more detail there if, if Patrick can connect with his, uh, his colleague, so. Yeah, I, think it, I think it's crucial. I mean, Mary Monk and I were talking about, you know, the, the salmon, you know, that the role of the Walter Monk Foundation is to conserve marine ecosystems and, you know, communicate about them. And, and uh, the importance of the salmon to the tribes, to the, to the uh, Salish people, the Salish Sea, the Bering Strait, the Arctic villages is, is without question. And in Patrick's area of Southeast Alaska, again, without question. So the study was that if the tidewater glaciers retreat, they're not delivering nutrient flow to the waters, then there's been statistical data indicating that the salmon coming back are underweight. And people have been wondering for years, what's happening to the salmon when they go up into the North Pacific? Are they just getting hammered by Chinese fishery um, boats or are they uh, subject to problems due to uh, El Nino or warming oceans or are there other factors involved? So this was really interesting to me because it puts a lens on something that's been a source of confusion and debate uh, for many years. Yeah, and, and 
to John's uh, John Gage's discussion about the systems thinking in an urban area. Um, the ocean system thinking is real important because when we look at uh, a variety of factors, um, the, the, the loss of weight is certainly tied to the nutrient uh, deficiencies that are uh, starting to happen. And, and I hope I can get Rager Bryan's contact information and he'll agree to it. But Dr. Rosita Whirl at the Sea Alaska Heritage Institute has been looking at, at um, herring harvests for uh, well over a decade. And um, the Japanese in particular uh, use a lot of herring that come out of Sitka. Uh, herring, herring spawn used to be seen in wide ranges of Southeast Alaska, pretty much limited now just to the Sitka area. And even that is declining. So uh, I, I throw that out there knowing that uh, if, if there is an effort looking at a systems approach to the health of the ocean, which I think is the right approach that um, not only do we look at the herring spawn issues, we look at the tidal glacial um, issues, but uh, as, as Shelley brought up, the dams, the Columbia River, for example, mm -hmm. has really decimated the Chinook salmon uh, contributions to the ocean, and that has to have impacted a lot of others as well. So uh, that, that is fertile ground that I, I, I hope... Uh, um, someone here will take to the powers that have the ability to influence that. Um, it, it, mm -hmm. It's uh, well, Patrick. You know, as we were discussing all this before the meeting, I said, "Okay, so this looks like this looks like a conversation about climate, environment, human rights, and health." To name a to name a few, but that was one of the ways that I formulated an outline, you know, for the, the video and for our conversation today. And your comment about the Columbia River, you know, all of this works together. So if we're releasing less fish from the Columbia, if we're releasing less fish from the Elwha, if we're releasing less fish in the Strait of Juan de Fuca and the Salish Sea, you know, there's less fish from the tidewater areas of Southeast Alaska they're compounding the same problem, which is human rights and sustainability and, you know, those types of issues. And contributing to the decline of species in general overall. So we need those salmon. That's not very political. <laughs> That's just facts. But I'm hoping we can explore that more with the Monk Foundation and other venues. So you guys, are we going to wrap it up? Yeah, I think we're definitely, definitely fading. And I just want to say again, <laughs> thank you, Robert, for this conversation. And I'm, I'm yeah. grateful that I had the time to spend with it and, and to meet people who are interested in the same arena that I'm interested in. So thank, thanks much to all of you who, the, the, the loyal 11 who remain on till the bitter end. And uh, Mrs. Monk, I wanted to tell you that my initial goal was um, as a boy to be uh, uh, marine biologist, oceanographer, something like that, but uh, I didn't have the education that allowed me to dream that big. Um, and, and so I admire the work that uh, uh, Dr. Monk 
did, even though I learned of it later in life. Um, uh, Lloyd Bridges was kind of my hero in Sea Hunt, and and, mm -hmm. and of course, it's a lot of the documentaries on the ocean, but uh, I'm glad people took up the mantle, and I hope that through my modest efforts at this stage of the game that we can do something to impact to the health of the planet and, and the health of the oceans, and all of you can, can be an important part of that. Well, I think one um, thing that is common among many scientists is that they are not very good communicators, and uh, oops, scientists, generally speaking, are not very good communicators, and that's um, where people with passion and wonderful communication skills like you and uh, all the rest of the people on this uh, um, webinar are more impactful maybe in some ways than some of the scientists. Walter was really concerned always with the students and, and colleagues and it didn't matter if an email came in from a seven-year-old, he would always immediately answer it. Um, but uh, I think it is um, the communicators that are going to have the greatest impact in making a difference in saving what's left of our incredible oceans. So I thank you. Thank you. There's no better wrap up than that. Thank you, Mary. And uh, thank you, everyone. Have yeah, a wonderful thank you, day. Robert. Thank you, everyone. So we'll record and edit this and get this up on the website or somewhere else where it's available. And I'll, I'll let you all know. Thank you. And, uh, Bye. Thank you. Thank Enrique, you it, Enrique, it's still morning in Alaska. <laughs> <laughs> All right, have a wonderful day. It was Thank nice you. meeting everyone. Thank you. Bye bye. Thank you.